Hi, I'm Tim Marlowe, the Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts in London. You're listening to a podcast from our events programme, recorded live in the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. I'm delighted tonight to introduce the panel discussion titled Making a Mockery, Exploring Humour and Satire in Art. This evening, the themes discussed have been formed and will be springboarding from Felix Vallotton's Painter of Disquiet, currently on show in the Sackler Galleries, which if you haven't already visited, I strongly recommend doing so. It's on the other side of the building. Our panel tonight includes political satirist Steve Bell, artist Bedwyr Williams, and artist duo John Wood and Paul Harrison. The event will be chaired tonight by Jessica Lack, who is a writer with a focus on modern and contemporary art. She contributes articles to many of the major art public publications and has written books about art for Tate Publishing, Penguin and Thames and Hudson. This evening Jessica will be asking our panellists to explore humour and satire in art and to discuss how it has impacted today's contemporary art world. So without further ado, please do join me in welcoming all the panellists to the stage. hoping we don't look quite as exciting and scintillating as the people behind. <laughs> this is a drawing by Bedware, I should point out. Um, and so I have next to me Steve Bell, the satiric, who does a satirical artist, um, who often lampoons uh, the political classes, and I'm sure you know very well, Bedware Williams, who has very often, I think, managed to find some joy and humour in what can sometimes be a very pretentious art world. And I've got Paul Harrison and John Wood, whose work often uses, performances often use slapstick, and I think follow a long tradition of absurdity and dardism <coughs> in the history of art, you'd say. Anyway, I thought I'd like to start this evening, if I may, um, just by asking each of you in turn, if possible, if you remember the first work of art that you saw that actually you found funny. Steve, do you mind kicking off? All right, well, um, if you mean a work of art, um, I, it's, it's difficult. I think <coughs> the first um, work of art that I knew was a work of art that I found funny and congenial everywhere was um, um, Toulouse-Lautrec. Um, mm. It's when I was at school and I discovered him. And um, um, it's obviously a contemporary of Valaton. Uh, I didn't, never heard of Valaton at the time. Um, and I just loved him. I just devoured him. Um, I just thought everything about him was wonderful. And I still do. I have nothing. My opinion has not changed at all. It's just the way his line is so fluid, so descriptive, so full of character, but also so full of um, compassion and just technically brilliant. And he only lived a very short time, but he was like a whirlwind. And um, also, I suppose it feeds into what I do, which is has a lot of caricature in it. There is an element of caricature in Lautrec, but it's not sort of character, because he characters himself. Um, but I suppose that's the thing. But that's not really the first art I responded to. The first art I responded to was comic art, which was in kids' comics. So um, the Beano, which I grew up on, and, um, and I never knew the name of the artist until much later. Um, there's, a, there's a guy called Leo Baxendale who, who invented things like Little Plum and... Um, the Three Bears and Bash Street Kids, and that's what I devoured when I was a kid, and I, I didn't even know it was art. And it is art. It's fabulous. It's wonderful stuff. <laughs> Bedwyr, were you inspired by comic art in any way? Yeah, I guess as a kid, I mean, we were talking about Fasic earlier on. I liked Fasic, but I think the time that I realised that I liked um, 
or that I, after being to art school, because I didn't see much funny arts while I was at arts college, but um, I think I, I saw a video of Martin Kippenberger dancing with his suit jacket tucked into his trousers in a tent somewhere in Germany. I think it was Germany. And uh, that looked funny, you know, and I knew he was an artist. And then closer to home, um, uh, Colin Lowe and Roddy Thompson were two artists that in the 90s that I, yeah, they, they were funny, you know, and, um, but also funny being artists in a way that I thought I wanted to be an artist or something. They were quite deadpan. Those artists you mentioned were really quite deadpan. Steve, <laughs> could I ask you first of all about your work? I mean, you know, your, your comics and your comic art goes back a long history to Gil Ray and all those sort of early Georgian satirists who, you know, lampooned, um, you know, the king and, and the, um, the politicians of the day. Do you see yourself very much in that history or was that something you oh, didn't know about? Yeah, I, I mean, I never did, you know, when I was starting out because I never heard of any of them. I, you, you, you see um, Gil, Gil Ray and Crutcher, they're all sort of in our... It's sort of an idea, eh? we don't, we, we know, we're familiar with the pictures a bit, but I wasn't really familiar with what they did until I started doing it for a living, and then I suddenly realised how bloody good they were, how brilliant Hogarth was, how, what a wonder, what a miracle Gilray is. Gilray was the first true political cartoonist. He was working in the late 18th century, and he, um, he um, shows us the politics of that era, and he turns the politicians and the king, the monarch, the, the various people in power into comic characters. And that's, I think, a wonderful achievement. And that's how we remember. You look at the grotesque um, George IV. There's a wonderful image of him called a voluptuary under the horrors of digestion. This great fat, blah, grotesque the lump George IV having had um, a huge meal and is picking his teeth with something. Um, and then his, his father, who was much more austere and also went mad, George III. And it's, it's called a um, uh, temperance enjoying a frugal meal. And it's his, his father eating a boiled egg. And, <laughs> and it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful pairing. You can see them at the Cartoon Museum now, both there, they're both up there. But it's, um, I only discovered these in later life and how fabulous it was and how, you know, he, you don't have to know what's in the speech bubbles because the, the speech is full of arcane sort of references to God knows what, but it's the picture that drives it along and that's what's so special about Gilray and why he was such a huge influence on everybody. And do um, you keep that in mind when you're doing your own sort of satirical lampooning of the royal family and others? Do you <laughs> keep that kind of idea of the key is that the image should... Oh yeah, because yeah, well, so, yeah. you have to know so much about what's happening well, day to day. I think with the picture, uh, there's always a pictorial logic going on with a comic. With um, comedy, there's, there's there's the kind of uh, there's the, the logic of the gag, and there's there's the story going on. But there's also the the story that's happening in the picture, and there's the there's a kind of pictorial logic that happens and and it explains itself. And sometimes you look at it from a distance of 200 years. You know, what the hell is that all about? But it's still it's still beautiful, it still makes sense in a way. Um, so it's, poli political cartooning is a very sort of, in some ways, deeply tedious occupation to do with the nuts and bolts and the specificities of 
tedious British politics and it's so fucking boring and just doing it again and again, year in, year out, and the same things come, keep coming round. Um, but <laughs> it's been that way for hundreds of years. Do you have favourite <laughs> politicians that you think, oh, good, they've said something, I can do them again? Or are there people... Well, yes and no. I mean, it's like sometimes they, they almost seem too easy. Well, you, you've got people like Trump and maybe Johnson as well, but Trump is like self-satirising. You cannot take him any... You cannot make him any more extreme than he is yeah. already. And he always takes himself to new... Un, un, unimagined extremes every day and he does it just like that and you can't satirise that it's just, I mean the fucker is beyond satire it's just <laughs> ridiculous <laughs> and we can end it on that really that's it, that's, that's our comment um, but where, where did the kind of humour come from originally because I'm sure when you started, you went to art school you know, did the, was the humour always there in the drawings? oh, the... Um, well Drawing and humour for me was it's, it's it's just loving comics and loving the you know loving just um, pouring over images. Um, what I loved about Leo Baxendale, who I mentioned earlier, who invented the uh, Bastard Kids and everything, was that his work was full of detail, which you could pour over and just sort of look at and just get lost in, and you could go back and back and over it and over it, and. It was, it was just brilliant, just, and, it, and it, of course it was funny, and I, I tried to ape it myself in my own, my, my, myself and my brother would draw stuff, and um, you, you try and redo it, and yeah, so humour's always been massively important, and, and, I, and it, it, the word is comic, which refers to humour. Other people don't, other cultures don't call it comic, they call it bande dessinée, or Fumetti in Italian, or, or um, uh, something more exalted like graphic novel, um, which is like big, fucking, expensive, long comic. But <laughs> for me, a comic is you know, it's, 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 it involves humour. It's, but it's not necessarily to be doing being funny. It's to do with there's a kind of shock about the way you you put images together and they spark off each other and create something and create a story. And you, uh, comics aren't always funny. They're, they're, they are, can be very sad and very challenging and very disturbing. Mm. So mm. there is that element too. Well, on that note of sad, disturbing <laughs> and challenging, bedwear. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but where did your humour come from in the art? Because, I mean, you, I, quite a lot, of, a lot of the time you're quite frustrated by the art world, I think, and some of your humour comes out from that, would you say? Yeah, I guess, like, you know, Growing up in a pretty English-speaking town in North Wales with a long Welsh first name, where the joke was always on me, you know, with, in a sea of Darrens and Kyles. It was, um, I think I used humour as my only, you know, crappy kind of defence move or something. And maybe the same when I went to art school as well, because there were so many, like, you know, you know what art school's like, full of people in crazy clothes and, like, Effect, affectation and so on and um, I found that humour was a good way to like I mean plus they look ridiculous anyway you know so it, it was just too good to be true for me I think. you know like <laughs> it's a, free, a kind of place where you can be free plus everyone's dressed in a way that they would never dare to do in their hometown you know and behaving in is great you know I don't mean it in a cynical way mm -hmm. like it's just 
good fun, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely, no, totally. But, and you did a really fantastic series, I remember, where you were talking about artists who take risks, and there were these wonderful drawings you did. And I was kind of wondering about that, and these were all about, um, you know, artists who um, perform taxidermy without any training and, you know, balancing themselves on ladders trying to fix, like, and there was a sort of, it was this sort of sense of the ego as the artist, like somehow they were so, the, these creatives, you know, didn't need to worry about the rules. And I really loved that whole series you did because it was incredibly funny, but it was also so true. It just reminded me exactly of art school. People kind of, you know, smashing great big blocks of ice in front of a whole load of um, electric cables, things like that. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's like a thing where, you know, within an arts bubble, you know, did you see what Jamie did last night? It was amazing. Like, the, whereas if you showed that to like civilians, they'd be like, you know, that <laughs> literally is nothing, you know. So I think that alongside the hyperbole that exists in the art world, and, you know, it, there's a lot to poke fun at, I think. Mm. But in the course of your career, have you seen the art world change at all? Have you seen it from, say, you know, I'm thinking of, sort of the late 90s when you were kind of graduated, and has it changed? Is it yeah, there's more, there's more people doing it, I think. But the big thing is, I think, social media and the internet, because, you know, before you might hear about the escapades of somebody on a Vaporetto in Venice who, you know, threw up into someone's heart, but now, it will be on Instagram, you know, and curators use Instagram as almost like, you know, like a living memoir in a way. So they, you know, they show themselves in these big chunky glasses in exotic places and, you know, with their arm around one artist one night and then quick as a flash, you know, their arms around two of the artists the next night. You're saying they're just high class prostitutes, that's what you're saying. Well, it's just like, uh, it seems, yeah, the, the Instagram has, has, is like the nitrous that has been put into the mix. It's crazy, you know, like it's turned up the gain and then all different strata of artists from, you know, hobby artists and stuff that hate contemporary art, right up to the big, big hitters, you know. They're all at it. And also, like, Instagram's quite accessible, isn't it? Mm. You know, it's free and, like, you can do what you like. So yeah. yeah. That is, I think it's to be seen, like, it's full impact, but... It's pretty mental, isn't it? I think. It is. It is. And I remember that you made this wonderful cake for Free's Art Fair once, and I think there's a picture of it, where you actually baked a curator and then invited people to kind of eat parts of it. Yeah. Was that, was that some kind of latent frustration coming out? With yeah, I mean, I've got a kind of hate, hate relationship with curators. I, you know, I, I've, and, uh, I've gathered that. <laughs> I, it seems to me that they get to do all the... They're always overseas. They're always in the parties. And they wear better clothes than me, better haircuts, expensive glasses. I don't need glasses, but they've got better glasses if I did need to. The whole, it seems like they've stolen the turkey somehow, you know, and um, I'm never going to stop being grumpy about that. <laughs> Well, it was quite, I was wondering, because that's a surrealist kind of element of, like, eating and work. Your work has surreal qualities, isn't it, and Dada's qualities, I would say. Um, would you say that Dadaism and have influenced your performances at all? Thank goodness we, we talked this one through on the train, uh, on the tube. Um, We've got a short answer for that. <laughs> Not really. No. <laughs> no. We were saying, because again, we were talking about earlier, that like, when we were art students, there was, you know, the internet wasn't there. 
and so you had books and stuff in the library, but you kind of, it was more like almost luck as to what you happened to see or what your tutors said to you or what exhibition you went to see. You know, and so kind of that wasn't uh, the route that we realised that stuff could be funny. Although I should say that we didn't think when we started working that our work was funny. And so we made our first two videos and, and we showed them somewhere, probably Germany. And uh, they were, uh, and people were like laughing, and we were a bit confused because we thought, we thought well, that's that's how serious, you know, yeah, we ages doing that. Uh, so we were we were a bit thrown, and we couldn't quite quite work it out. And uh, but we probably, in terms of the humour, for me, I don't know about Paul, but it was realising at art college through a route of kind of. People like Richard, uh, Richard Prince and John Baldessari and Piero Manzoni and William Wegman and kind of and, and then maybe going back you sort of trace stuff back don't you to then like I sort of found out about Fluxus and then through Fluxus then you kind of find out about happenings in the 60s and then back to Dada so it, in the end it kind of did or, or equally there are artists that you find found much much later you know like British artists like um, John Smith, filmmaker, and Ian mm. Bourne. Mm. You know, they were sort of important, and Roman Signa, but we didn't find out about them until years after we'd left art college. Yeah, it's hard to imagine there how, how difficult it was to get hold of stuff before the internet. You know, you had a couple of VHS tapes. Yeah. And, you know, that was it. And also, I think the, the, sorry, the Dada surrealist thing is, I think we consider what we do to be completely normal, and n there's nothing kind yeah. of, th there's nothing kind of odd about it. And maybe that's because there's two of us and we're in this room and we kind of, you know, we spend all our time kind of talking about it and, and doing it. It just feels very natural. We, it can be quite dangerous. I mean, we haven't seen it, but there's one wonderful one of um, you both tied up together and um, uh, tennis balls are being thrown at you and you're trying to keep out the way but you're actually together and and you get really quite badly hit i'm assuming there were bruises at the end of that <laughs> they're quite painful um you were slow so you yeah. got hit a lot have yeah. you found that sort of element of danger actually kind of makes it funny almost it's or is it just that you are quite interested in that well danger? i mean people falling over is just inherently funny obviously or yeah. people being hit or unfortunate things happening to people is I know we're not, you know, it's 2019, we're not supposed to, but, you know, there is something in that. So we kind of, we do kind of play and work with that, but we are very, um, as I say, you know, the reason why we're pulling this face, another, another work we made where um, John broke his neck. Um, we were in the back of a, a Luton van, so a big kind of van that was kitted out, and we were on chairs like this, but with wheels. So as the van moved around, we were kind of moving around. And at first it was just hilariously funny because we were just swarming around in this van in this Bristol traffic. And then, um, yeah. And the then bus he, pulled out on us. Yeah. Mm. The, and the driver broke and uh, John hit the back of the van, broke his neck. So stop being funny then. <laughs> but we carried on filming. Did yeah, you carry we, on filming? Yeah, we carried on filming. We didn't realise. We got it then. <laughs> Is that, that would you say that's possibly when you went too far? Would you say that was a moment that you possibly... It's far enough, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. But I remember, I mean, when, especially when you are sort of younger and we just left college, we were making a video called Boat where we, we sort of built a semicircle 
structure and the two of us were in it and we rock it until we could flip it over and, it, and our studio had a concrete floor and it was in rural Shropshire and uh, this again this was before mobile phones and the internet and we were thinking so when we slam down when we because we proper rocked it and like go over when we slam down this onto concrete you know will we what, what happens if we break our kneecaps and we honestly I remember you know, having a serious conversation could we drive and it was a genuinely serious conversation could we drive the van Paul's van with Paul doing the, the steering wheel and me doing the pedals with my hands to, to A&E but, um, but mostly we're sort of we're we're quite good at health and safety. Well, I say we're good at health and safety. I broke my neck, so we're not that good at health and safety. <laughs> but mostly we're sort of... Yeah. You know. I mean, a lot... I mean, I don't always bed with like, things, but a lot of... Our stuff can be funny at times, but largely, I think, anyway, largely due to the context, in that we're not supposed to be funny, or we don't have to be funny, or it doesn't matter if people don't laugh. So I think that if you transferred our stuff into another arena, then it wouldn't possibly have the same effect. Mm. It's because you've got that kind of, you know, people expect something when they go into a gallery or a museum. Um, and particularly, I mean, I think it goes up and down, you know, there are kind of periods where people want a lot of very serious stuff, like mm. now. Mm. And then there are other periods, I don't know whether it's linked to financial markets or whatever, or external things or politics, but now people want serious stuff. Um, and it's not quite so good to be funny. But um, do you find, yeah, that the same work, the same performance can be hilarious one time and then put it in a different context, you say, and suddenly it becomes very serious, but it, you haven't actually changed it. It's just where that, that film has been shown. Yeah, they, I think they can be funny and they can be, well, serious is polite, but unfunny. Mm. I mean, they can, in a sense, they can bomb. But it, yeah, because it does shift, like, because what we think is funny when we're filming it in the studio or when we're just starting to mess about with stuff to see whether that will go into a film. And we might be sort of falling about laughing, you know, thinking this is really, you know, the best thing we've done. And then we, I remember we did a, a screening in Canada and we don't, on the whole we don't do screenings at film festivals, but where you've got the audience trapped like this. and. Uh, the, and, and you're sort of standing at the side, sort of thinking, oh, it's not going very well, and three people have left. And, uh, <laughs> Don't anyone leave. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, the walkers, as we call them. Uh, and, and, I, and I remember thinking, oh, brilliant. This one that we cried laughing doing when we were filming it, this will warm the audience up, this will get... And, it, and I just remember it just bombing, like it, or it just being silent and kind of people gasping, and then afterwards saying to us, you know, that was very, uh, it was very dark. You know, and you're thinking, oh no. You know, so you can never, we can't predict what we think is, you know, that made us laugh filming it. Yeah. And equally, uh, we did a, a show in Naples a few years ago. And we'd made a piece of work, and, and again in the gallery, I remember putting a certain piece of work in, back in one of the rooms and thinking, we're sort of safe with this bit of work, because that, you know. And then it was another piece of work that completely, that they just loved and thought was really funny, and one that I didn't think, that I thought was really hardcore, sort of minimal. Yeah. Uh, so you can, we, we're, maybe we're just crap at predicting. You know, talk, talk, and very briefly, talking of influences, that was, it was 100 Falls. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was a work that 
they read into it saying that oh, it, was yeah. about, it was about you know 2008 it's about the financial crisis and stuff it was it was me climbing up a ladder and then we threw a dummy down and uh, then then we cut and I took the place of the dummy and then got up and, and did it again it yeah. cut really badly and it was influenced or it, the starting point for that was the goodies oh brilliant yeah so I just loved that kind of real kind of stupid <laughs> fake kind of click and then someone would get up so we just made this piece about that but they really thought it was, and again, there's a French collector that's got quite a lot of her work, and we'll make something. And he, and then, and then this gallery in Naples, they all come up to us and be like, so that, this is about the economic crash. And you, we're thinking, hmm. <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. Uh, but you can't tell what yeah. people will project onto sort of human. Yeah. Well, Steve, have you ever made a, a kind of satirical drawing that has been completely misinterpreted? Oh, yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I tried to blot it out when it happened. Um, I mean, you just go day by day, you, um, you do it, and I'm, I'm always working daily pretty well, so um, I put it in, it, goes, it comes in the paper the next day, so it's a wonderful, quick turnaround, so I see it. Um, but I think one thing I've learnt um, in all the years I've been doing it is that the work job, the work, the job, the, the cartoon is not finished until you see it in print and you know whether it works or not. And um, sometimes you think, you know, drawing it, oh, that's really great, I've done a fabulous thing there. Um, I really enjoy that. And you see it next day and it just falls flat. And I, I, I'm not going by what other people, because it's not like a performance piece where I've got an audience in front of me. I'm, I'm just going by myself looking at it. But um, you do pick up on what other people think as well, but usually it's you're assessing your own performance as you go. And it happens the other way about too, so you sort of, you're rushing to meet a deadline, and obviously deadlines are wonderful things, and they force you to work quickly, and sometimes they force you to do things you wouldn't otherwise dare do, because you've just got to hit the spot, and you've got to be slightly arrogant about it as well. Um, but basically, you've just got to hit the deadline, so you do, and you do it. It's, it's, it's not a question of it being the best or the greatest thing you're ever going to do. It's got to be good enough. That's what it is. You, you, it's got to be good enough. And, you know, you, so you sometimes do something, you just, oh, Christ, thank God I got that. Oh, well, don't feel very good about that. And you see it the next day, and it works. And I don't know why. Um, I don't really understand the way the, way the process works. I'm still learning. Um, I was kind of intrigued to know, I mean, are there certain politicians who kind of try to get you to caricature them? Have you ever been kind of chased down the halls um, of Westminster with Steve no, Steve? No, not really. <laughs> Weirdly, no. But I mean, I, I mean, I was approached by Boris Johnson, of all people. Um, <laughs> and this, this is most unusual, because I think it's the first, you know, um, and I, I actually worked for him for about a year, or more than a year, because he was editor of The Spectator then, before he was a, he was obviously a Tory, and he was obviously, it was before he was, an, it might have been around about the time he became an MP again. Um, and he was, he was very keen, and um, usually you go through life and I just, bash it out day in day out. It was, good. it was nice to have somebody come along and <laughs> be interested, as it were. Because I'd been doing um, Blair and New Labour and sort of 
shoveling shit all over them for many years. And the Tories hardly registered because they were so shit. <laughs> this was in the days of Ian Duncan Smith as leader, um, who was then replaced by um, um, Michael Howard. So it was the dark days of Toryism. Um, so, and um, anyway, he, he was fine to work for. He was, um, he was very uh, he was enthusiastic. He was genuinely enthusiastic, which I found odd. Is he still enthusiastic now? I, I don't know, slightly. I've not really sort of... I mean, he's, he's, he's you know, sort of, no, I don't know. You know all right, how's it, how's it going? <laughs> you fat fool. Um, <laughs> I, no, I, I hope it hasn't moderated my abuse for him. I, I, mean, I was quite, I quite, I quite got on fine with him. He's, he's quite, he's, that's the thing. He's quite charming, mm. and mm. Um, he had, does his line in self-deprecation. Um, but but I, I remember that Cameron got David Cameron got quite upset. Yeah, well, that's that's the intention, really. You want you want them to hate it. Exactly. You want to get up their noses. It wasn't quite as simple as that because he, um, I, I'd started drawing him. I, I tried various things like doing him as a jellyfish because he was transparent, and going on about transparency in the days of MPs' expenses and all that shit. Um, but it was too elaborate and boring to have to draw him as a jellyfish every day. It was just you know, pain in the bum. So, <laughs> in the end, these posters appeared. It was 2010, and there was this election coming on, and uh, these posters of this, this head at the side saying, this big pink head saying, I'll cut the deficit, not the NHS. And there we go, sort of sticking up. I thought, oh, fucking bastard, I hate you. Um, which I'm quite often motivated by hate. And I, I don't know what, what it was, it was just a sort of a reflex of disgust. And I, I sort of unrolled a condom, a large condom over his entire head. And anyway, for me, that worked. It was a, yeah, it made me feel good. And weirdly, the editor hated it. So I had a great deal of difficulty. This was the then editor, Alan Rusbridger, who had a sort of strangely prudish side to him. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a message indirectly the next day through one of the page editors saying, um, the editor doesn't want to see any more condom. I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? Because I thought, I'd, you know, seeing it back the next day, yeah, that, that works, that's good, I like yeah. that, I can, I can take, I can run with that. Um, and, um, no, he says, no, didn't want to see any more condoms. So I went through this terrible, prolonged period of not being able to draw him with overt condomy features. I could do him like wrapped up in a balloon, but it couldn't have the sort of teeny right. bit. There was a period where he still, seemed to have little knots in it. Was that your balloon face? I didn't ever notice that. Well, there was, there was a sort of, anyway, I don't know why he eventually sort of came round and said, oh, all right, you can do condoms. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, had, I had a couple of stand-up rows with them. I said, this is nonsense. You know, this is the first time anybody said, don't draw anybody in a particular way. It's stupid, it's prudish. You know, school kids know all about condoms. It's not that they're, you know, mm. they have an implication of slight obscenity, but it's not overtly obscene. Um, and Cameron himself actually came up to, to me I never met the man before, but this was during the election campaign in 2010. And um, he said, hello. And I said, hello. <laughs> and he, he asked me straight, he said, what's this condom thing all about? <laughs> what's this? What's this? He looks you in the eyes. Sort of, 
crow's feet and to it looks you straight in the eye What's this condom thing on? So I saw, I said, well, it's to do with your extreme youth and the smoothness of your complexion. <laughs> Which is sort of partly true. Um, <laughs> and he, I, I didn't know what to think, really. And he, he went his way, I went mine, he carried on this ridiculous. I was following him during the election campaign. And then some months later, at a party conference, same thing happened. Um, I was standing with a colleague having a drink and a piss-up, and his entourage entered the room, came sweeping round, and came up to where we were standing. And the first thing he said was, you're not still doing that condom thing. <laughs> so I thought, oh, I, I didn't actually say anything. I just thought, he doesn't like it. <laughs> Which is entirely the attention. So I took, exactly. I took some comfort from that, yeah. Fedra, have you ever had any um, curator tell you you've gone too far or they don't want you to do a work? Um, I did it actually with Grace Dewart, who I made the uh, curator cake with, when uh, we, went, we went to Tokyo and I had a monologue that I delivered and what, it had to be translated into Japanese for the uh, simulation, not so simulated, simultaneous translation. And um, one of the lines was, uh, imagine a DJ made out of cheese. You don't need to know the context, but that was the line. And the Japanese translator said, um, could we say, imagine a DJ covered in cheese? And I said, no. He said, in, in Japan, people won't accept a DJ that is con completely made out of cheese. <laughs> and I, I, I had to insist. Because <laughs> so, it was quite a rambling uh, monologue, but this one line, there was just one thing, and it was the DJ made out of cheese. I still don't know to this day exactly what. I love the idea that you had to get on your artistic integrity high horse for that. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of special. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it, the, it's in the detail, isn't it? Yeah. But I think I haven't been back to Tokyo since. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were just talking earlier about panel discussions because you've done some lovely drawings about it. Have you been on any? I mean, they can be incredibly serious and um, kind of forums, I suppose. And I mean, what's the kind of most ridiculous thing a curator or panel discussion? Mm. Question. I mean, I can't think of a single thing, but I, I'm of this theory that, like, this opinion that what did visual arts do to deserve pan panel discussions? You know, like, contemporary <laughs> dance doesn't have it. I don't think the theatre has it so much. Like, it's like a parasite. It, the, if you Google art panel discussion, it's all these crossed legs and... <laughs> and the microphone. It, it's like it's like the opposite of why I went to art school. You know, mm. I hate it. I, I, there has to be something absolutely extraordinary talking on something like. I mean, I'm, you know, this is great. This is different. <laughs> I'm talking about the drive. You know, the mega brain kind of like they like art so much they don't make art. They just think about it, you know, like that stuff. Four of those people in a row well, is hell. It loses the magic, doesn't it? The creativity when you start trying to analyse it. And have you ever had your work really misinterpreted? Um, 
I think overseas actually is missed because I use language quite a bit in my work and um, I think there's I remember reading somewhere that French people find British people irritating that we're always cracking jokes you know they find that irritating and I think it's the same in the art world I think other artists and curators don't like you to be cracking funnies and in my defense I don't think that that's what I'm doing all the time you know mm. it's not like I'm trying to I'm not going it's not that mm. and um, no, I think you make extremely serious... I mean, I think all of you make very serious points with your work. And I sometimes wonder if the humour is there almost to sort of, as a sort of release almost from the fact that, you know, the world is a scary, difficult place. And a lot of you... I mean, all your work is very much centred in that. And I wonder whether the humour comes from... But laughter's involuntary as well, isn't yeah. it? So, like, apart from, like, some of the involuntary rude things and, like, crying, there's making somebody laugh... Like, that's slightly out of their control a little bit. So if, if part of what you're saying comes with that around it, mm. I, don't, I don't see any harm in that. You know, like. Well, I wondered if, like, I can't... Four very successful artists here, but would any of you say that possibly your career has been slightly hampered by the fact that occasionally you've been seen as... or you've been considered a funny artist. I mean, John and Paul, would you say that all that's your Yeah. 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 (laughs) I think it got... um, When... I think the art world has sort of changed, obviously, you know, since the 90s to now. So at first, I I remember we were in the British Art Show in 2000, and uh, I remember people coming up to us genuinely apologising that they found our work funny. Um, I really, honestly, sort of come up to you and say, I'm really sorry, but I just wanted to tell you I thought your work was really funny. And, uh, and I think the sort of climate had changed, you know, there, that it was kind of acceptable that, you know, and we, we liked it, you know, uh, and we often, at that point, thought we were quite relieved if people brought um, kids to the show, because kids would look at our stuff and just would sort of respond to it and laugh or whatever. Um, and it seemed to, then, there was almost a thing that you weren't supposed to laugh in galleries. Um, but the flip of that is, we have been accused of various things, um, is that uh, there's a, a, I think there's a line to do with, like, if stuff is... Ex- humour is often accessible, and, there, and therefore accessibility often, I think, in the art world can be seen as a bad thing, of being populist and kind of... So I think that has definitely, you know... I mean, I know from... We've got a little list... Of curators, yeah. uh, we have uh, a of who, room. where it's, but yeah, where it's kind of been said, oh no, you know, there's in the same way that we were accused of things like of not being when we first began, of not being video art, um, that we were just um, recording live performances, and uh, your work would be all right if you used dancers. You know, there was a whole kind of catalogue of rules of people telling us, which we became, we're very good, and when there's two of you, you've got an advantage, but we're very good at glazing over and just nodding, uh, you know, when someone comes and tells you what you should be doing. But it always reminds, and I know sort of, you know, taxi drivers normally get the flack for this, but I remember thinking when, when I was, I had like lots of surgery after, after I did do my neck, my surgeon was brilliant, a neuro, sort of top, top neurosurgeon in Bristol. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do what you know, curators and taxi drivers do to me. I'm going to tell him what he wants to do. You know? 
and Paul kept offering that he could do the surgery. He's yeah. got sort of tools in the studio and stuff like that. But there's that. Where else do you sort of tell people? Tell people in art yeah. a lot, you know, including my mum and dad, you know, telling me what I should be doing. Uh, so that I think, and that humour thing is linked to that of like, yeah. or people telling you what you. I think your dad was quite good at this, wasn't he? Telling us what would be funny. Yeah. Telling us what we should do. <laughs> yeah. Here's an idea for you. Yeah. you make this one. Thanks, Dad. Fred, yeah. uh, do, do your parents offer any input into your work at all? Um, I mean, my dad's been in a few of my films, and I think we, we were allowed to. Me, and my brother, he's. You know, he went to art school as well, and it works on some of my videos. So, we, we were allowed to draw on the walls in the in our bedroom. That's pretty unusual. Yeah, and we also had like um, speakers in the window, and we use microphones and like shout at other kids <laughs> in the next door garden, <laughs> like torment them. I think just two of us. We spoke Welsh, obviously, to each other, and in this area that wasn't particularly well speaking, it was just yeah, kind of. That's another thing with humour is that often it, it pickles, you know, if you're in an isolated situation. So, um, I, I watched that film about Frank Sidebottom. I don't know if you've seen mm, that. That's very yeah. good. That, those early things of, like, him and his brother, I think, those early recordings. I kind of... I could as associate with that somehow, you know. Mm. Um, so, I think my parents were more like, you know, chapel people and probably seemingly quite straight from the outside, they created this perfect little uh, hothouse for us to become little Welsh weirdos, you know, in common rooms. <laughs> and you're grateful for it since. Yeah. Um, Steve, Napoleon said um, that Gilray did more than any army to bring down his government. Will you be doing the same? Will we be seeing the Conservatives <laughs> thanks to you? I, I didn't realise Napoleon had said that about Gilray. I mean, Gilray is hugely influential, um, and he influenced David, you know, one who glorified Napoleon uh, hugely. David was a huge fan, as was Goya. So it, there was an international sort of sweep to his work. He wasn't just a... Because you, you think, oh, obscure politics of the late 18th century, but... He made it something, he, he elevated it to another sphere, which I think is the comic sphere. Um, and he made it amusing and he made it just brilliant. I mean, there's some of his... It's a bit like looking at cave paintings, looking at old political cartoons. You don't know what the fuck they're about. But um, you, there's a wonderful thing of his called the apotheosis of Hosh. And Hosh was a um, particular um, French revolutionary general. So. There's this who died under some circumstances. I'm not entirely sure of the details, but this guy's going up to heaven, so it's an apotheosis. And there's like guillotines with wings, so it's completely <laughs> anti-revolutionary. It's, 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 it's violently anti-French revolution. And in fact, Gilray was actually paid good money by um, a, a, a publication called the Anti-Jacobin to do this kind of anti-revolutionary kind of propaganda. But it, in a sense, it doesn't matter. It is, it, it's, it's sort of venal, but it's also it's transcendent because it's so completely mad and just, just visually stunning. Um, so whether he, <laughs> whether he was... <laughs> I mean, dictators and politicians don't like having the piss taken out of them, as a rule. Um, but 
there's perhaps a strong tradition of it in, in Britain where they do. They're used to it because it's been going on for like 200, 300, 200, 300 years. So what you're doing is you're saying you're hoping you're safe that no guillotine is going to come for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, who knows? But whether you change things or not, I don't think that's... You, you do because in the sense that any commentary has, has an effect and it's stupid to pretend you don't have an effect because you're peddling your views and in, the, in a public print and, you know, they're read by lots of people and it's... So to pretend, oh, no, what I do is I'm above it all, it doesn't, it doesn't make any difference to anything. I think journalism does make a difference and visual journalism makes a difference too, whether mine does or not, not really for me to say. I hope, you know, I'd, I'd hope has a little bit of an effect, but usually, you know, I want, I want to sort of... I want to destroy people, but I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think John Major's underpants ever destroyed him. He's still oh, there. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he said it did. <laughs> no, I think he ever did say that. He said, he said there was a quote in a book, a uh, biography, and he was asked about the underpants, or why he answered, I don't know, but he said, it's designed to destabilise me, so I ignore it. <laughs> that was a great reply. Especially when they're so comfy. I mean, it's exactly opposite. They're holding him up, surely. Yeah. <laughs> Bedway, I know that you um, published a book called Bedway. I'm sorry I missed your show. I think I missed your show, which I quite like the idea that they might have seen it, but they couldn't. Can you just tell me a little bit about what made you publish a book? As it was called uh, Bedway, I think I missed your performance. Uh, so I used to do these performances at openings and uh, I'd get a text later hi I think I might have missed you know was, I don't think any effort was made to catch up with them so I, I I just gathered all the documentation associated with these performances that nobody ever saw and uh, and it's, it's just all my performances with like little margin notes about how I really learned to dislike curators you know that's it's all in there it's like a kind of uh, yeah, it's not who's who, but it's, it's how I, how I learnt to like, not like them so much. <laughs> so we, I just, we just discovered when we were sitting outside that um, none of us live in London. And I wonder if that certain detachment from the centre of power has helped with your art in any way. I mean, Steve, would you say it does in terms of not being right in the political boiling pot? Oh, for me, it does, yes, certainly, because um, I, I've always worked at home. I live in Brighton, and I did for a brief period when I started out. I was in Birmingham, but um, we moved to Brighton, been there ever since. And um, I do sort of cherish not having to go into the bloody Guardian or, and to work on the premises because it's never been necessary because I always did a strip which I'd send in weekly batches, and I'd send it by train before there was internet or anything like that. Then I faxed it, but um, so I never got into the habit of going to be on the, be, on the, be at the place, and so I've, I've missed out on all the fun of having a workplace, but... But possibly, other, maybe, was it, it sort of enabled you to be a bit cheekier than possibly if you were I, th I think it has, I think it's helped time. a great deal because I'm in the position of everybody else. I'm shouting at the radio. I don't have any input into anything. I, I've been to Westminster, and it's a loathsome place. And it's a lo particularly a loathsome place to have to work. And I've got friends who spend their lives there, and you think, oh, my God, that would drive me completely mad. 
No, not that there's anything necessarily wrong with rubbing shoulders with politicians. I don't think politicians are any worse or better than we are. I think they are, they're there. They're not particularly more venal than we are. They're not, they're, there are some, a lot of scumbags and, and wankers and tossers are very well represented. But um, it, 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 I don't see myself as being any better than them. So my responses are... I'm just responding, I think, as anybody else would. Mm. And I'm getting all my stuff off the TV or the internet or whatever. So mm. I don't have a. Mm. Though I do like going to party conferences because you then get the smell of them as well. And the, <laughs> <laughs> the, the special smell of politics. Which is, and it's also very good periodically to go and draw them live because I don't often do any live, live drawing sort of thing. but. I sort of make myself do it at conference time, and I just get my sketchbook out, and it's a, it's a great, it's a sort of discipline, but it's it's fun too. But drawing is also grueling and a grind, and uh, I just make myself do it, and I really appreciate doing it. So you got, so I've got you know sketchbooks full of old. Are there, are there politicians that you see at a party conference and you think, oh, they would be a good person, I hope they become bigger in the future and I can develop that character? <laughs> no. <laughs> really. Just wait for it's it. More, I hope I never see that fucker ever. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, God, now they have sex. Here we go. Yeah, um, John Paul, what about you? you know, you're based in Liverpool. And Bristol. Oh, and apologies. Yeah, and um, do you find it good to be slightly detached from the, the art world in London or as the kind of focus of it? Does it help at all? It's cheaper. It's definitely <laughs> cheaper. I mean, we're slightly, I think I am, slightly closer to New York than you are. So it's all about the geography. I, I don't know. What do you think? I think because we, uh, we've got our studio... And so that becomes like a little bubble that we're in. in. In a way, even if that was in the centre of London, we'd still we sort of shut the door and then kind of do things. And so you're kind of... It, it doesn't really um, affect us. It's much more to do with practical stuff, of that we can afford a studio in Bristol that we can film in because you need quite a big space for that. And then mm. we've got all things like Ardman Animation are next to us and they help us quite a lot. So there's, it's like just dead useful and... I think a lot of the stuff that we do is, is, is not based in England. We do a lot of stuff overseas and people just expect that you live in London. So we live in, well, you live in West London, um, <laughs> way out west. Uh, so you don't have that same kind of, you know, you, you have a, a slightly different uh, relationship to the rest of Europe and the rest of the world. And I think sometimes as well, as an art, as an artist, maybe it can just do your head in because it can be just too intense yeah yeah you know, being all the time and there's that pressure of um i mean there's a lot of stuff happens outside of london obviously but there's that pressure here, here that you'll uh you know do i get am i in the studio light or do i go to an opening would i go to three openings would i go to a talk and mm. this and so mm. there's that and you just get i think there's a lot of people that can Particularly now, because it's so expensive. I mean, it's not like in the 90s, you know, in the late 80s, yeah. when you could possibly do both. But now I think it's a choice between, you know, uh, eating, working, studio. That's why so many people are artists are moving out. 
Well, yeah, I mean, maybe you were kind of an early one. I mean, you studied in London, obviously. And you left pretty early, I seem to remember. A lot of people were like, I mean, you left almost... Yeah, they said, early. like, don't, don't go, it's a bad idea. And then when things got better, they said that it was a counterintuitive decision that <laughs> I made. But like, they yeah. said it was a bad idea at the time. And um, I've got a slight problem with... There was a time a few years ago when all, like middle-class uh, British artists moved to Berlin, you know, like a, yeah. a whole... it was an exodus. You know, like five minibusfuls or something. <laughs> and um, what if all the dentists did that or something? You know, I, I don't think artists should do that. And I, there's something really uh, presumptuous that they should just move somewhere and like, not learn the language and go and live, you know, like... I heard Lisbon's very good. So, like, <laughs> 50 like British artists just go there. Why should that... You know, yeah. there's something so privileged that? about that, and like, and then they, you know, they look like they're, there's no money, but there is money, obviously. Like they just wear old shoes and stuff. Well, <laughs> a whole we could discuss like yeah, the trust fund artists for hours, the secrets behind it. But um, in this climate, the political climate we're in, we're, I know we're running out of time, but I'd love to know: Do you think satire gets funnier? the worse it gets. Steve, do you want to kick off? Um, I, I suppose it becomes more necessary. Um, and there are different pressures on it. It becomes, when, when you've got odd phenomena like Trump and to a lesser extent Boris Johnson, it, it comes a question of how do you deal with it? And it's, it, it seems futile. You, know, you keep doing the same thing, banging your head against the wall. But there is, there's still something valid in it. Um, whether it's better or not, whether it's more ferocious, I don't know. I, I also think, having been sort of looking at the history of comics, cartoons quite a lot lately, because I've been closely involved with the Cartoon Museum and curating a kind of the the new move to the new premises as a sort of new permanent show. And so I've been going through it in some detail. And you see that there's kind of stylistic flows that go. And, um, and that's interesting. Why, why, why was, in the age of Gilray, why was it so rude? I mean, they were doing stuff I would never dare even try. I know I wouldn't get away with. I mean, stuff farting in the face of the monarch. There's a wonderful car cartoonist who died very young, called Richard Newton, who was a contemporary of Gilray. And there's this fabulous one of John Bull, the character, the sort of bluff everyman. He's sort of farting in the face of George III, <laughs> <laughs> you know, spraying him with a follow-through or whatever. Um, and it's absolutely disgusting, and it's purely wonderful. And uh, Richard Newton had a wonderful modern goggle-eyed cartoony look, the work that he drew. And he, he died at the age of 21, it's tragic. But, Anyway, um, so that was vehemently going through the 1780s, 90s, into the noughties and the 10s. And it, by 1820, when things were getting worse, actually, in a strange way, the satire became much more polite. Mm. And that's another thing about the, um, uh, the way the British system incorporates things. Uh, it, it, there, there's a, where in France, people would be arrested. Um, there was a tradition like um, Honoré Daumier was banged up for a while for a particular drawing he did of Louis-Philippe. Um, what happened with Cruikshank, who was a slightly older contemporary of Daumier, 
he got bought off. They paid him 100 quid. He's only a young cartoonist. He took over from Gil Ray. He was wonderfully stylistically gifted and was drawing in the same manner. And Gil Ray sadly went bonkers and died in 1815, but Crickshank stepped up and carried on drawing in the same way, in the same style. And the same style was still current. But you can see how the style was running out of steam. It was, it was sort of stale and mm. it was so virulent that, you know, it was just, and people were doing it incredibly well. But then it moved on and became more polite and people changed to lithographs. And you've got, there's a character called H.D. John Doyle who was doing these ter terribly polite kind of caricatures of the Duke of Wellington and the, the various politicians of the age. The politics of the age were, you know, Peter Lou was at this time. Yeah, it was yeah. quite virulent. Um, so it's interesting, sort of, does satire get more... It certainly got a lot safer and a lot more comfy during the Victorian age, and then it sort of revived again you know, in the 20th century. So I, why and how it works, I don't know. Whether I, it's... It, whether it's yeah. It, I don't think there is a direct correlation between things getting worse and things getting better or whatever. Yeah. What about you, Bedway? What do you see the landscape? Do you think there's a role for funny art in what's going on, or do you feel it just looks so? Yeah, I, I think we're in a weird time now where, like, you know, you've got the press, and then you've got, like, little fake news outlets online and stuff like that. And um, so, you know, even, like, bonkers points of view are delivered with, like, a fake kind of red top banner into your inbox. And you, you look at it for a second, or it's in your Facebook feed or whatever. And um, so it, there's like a lot of information at the moment, and I think it's hard to land proper hits, you know. Mm. And uh, but slightly off point, I think, you know, the Boris Johnson thing is like he was on Have I Got News for You, wasn't he? Like as a cuddly, like mm. public school mm. polar bear character. <laughs> so then they like they brought him into the house, really, hey, like, and um. I kind of hold them responsible a little. And that's a toothless <laughs> show now, eh? That's a really... <laughs> that's not sat, you know. That's it's a... True. Like, a, well, like those hillbilly things in the arcades that you could shoot. You know, it's a not... It's an old man game show. It's not, it's not fit for purpose, I don't think. I mean, these people should be, putting, be put to the sword right now, I think. And, uh, well, like, they're not doing it. You know, it's, it's too chummy, I think. It's yeah. true, I agree. Well, on that note, we'll blame. Have I got news for you? So all the woes of Brexit and everything. Um, well, I'd like to thank our panel very much, then. Uh, Steve, Bedweer, Paul and John, thank you very much for coming all the way down. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this recording, feel free to leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.